Coming up on today's show, in the middle of the night, in the Alberta legislature, Bill 81 passed. We often talk about 2050 and being electric and net zero and all the rest. What do we need to do to get there? And Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin holding some high stakes talks over the future of Russia and that buildup on the Ukrainian border. Something happened in our province last night, in the middle of the night, that a lot of people are extremely concerned about. It happened in the legislature, of all places, with the UCP government um, uh, rushing through third reading. Some people say rushing through, um, you know, basically the last day of the session. So they had to do it now or it had to be held over to the spring. Bill 81, which is a huge, huge bill that does all kinds of different things around um, electoral financing and party nominations uh, in the province of Alberta. And there's a lot of people, including a number of UCP MLAs who spoke out in the legislative chamber last night about this bill, saying we're doing some things here that are wrong, that are anti-democratic, and are not the way things are supposed to work in this country let alone in this province. Now, it happened in the middle of the night, and I'm trying to get up to speed on exactly what the concerns are. Primarily, um, one of the ones that was really, really um, pushed back against in the House last night is the fact that you can buy a party membership for somebody else, okay? And they don't even have to consent to you buying the party membership on their behalf, which then changes the rules about who attended party nomination meetings, how many supporters they have, and it also changes how much financing can be raised. Like I say, I'm still trying to sort through all the details. To get some help on that, we're going to chat with Lori Williams now. Uh, Lori, of course, an associate professor and student advisor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. Lori, thanks for spending some time to try and help me uh, sort this out this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Shane. So, Bill 81. Uh, like I say, we had a number of UCP MLA speaking out against it. The independents were against it. The NDP, of course, were against it. Um, what's the primary concern? Because uh, a lot of people saying, you know, this is an erosion of democracy in the province of Alberta. Well, you, you've mentioned one of them. I mean, the whole idea here is, uh, that I think has a lot of people concerned, is this whole question of, of transparency and accountability. There were a couple of changes made to the legislation, um, because in, the original draft made it possible for someone to donate to a nomination contest, uh, a third-party advertiser uh, donate to a nomination contest, and that money could then be donated to the party if it were in, in surplus, if it weren't used in the nomination, and it couldn't be traced in um, um, in, the, in the usual ways and didn't have to be reported quarterly. Uh, now, that, right. that removal of the quarter, quarterly report, reporting is still there. So in other words, uh, a, a party could accumulate funds uh, without having to, to disclose the, the source um, for up to a year, as things stand right now. And, of course, the donation limits uh, apply not just to a single nomination, but over uh, an entire year. Um, so this, the, the transparency and accountability is problematic. From that point of view, um, the other concerning part was the language around uh, who could be affiliated with a party and also be a um, a third party advertiser right. uh, was was very very vaguely defined and it it was there was concern that it could mean that somebody who simply speaks out uh, to criticize a policy could seen it, be seen as associated with a party as as we've seen sometimes happen that those sorts of connections have been made um, by this government in the past and so some people were worried that that connection would would um, 
make it impossible for them to to register as a third-party advertiser. That um, has been tightened up just a little bit to say that there's there's got to be a more direct connection between them. Maybe not as clear as it could be yet, but but slight improvements there. So the concerns then, therefore, particularly about transparency and donations, are still in place. Um, and and uh, and as you pointed out, um, just general concerns about you know, who's buying memberships for whom and, and whether that... I mean, we saw this actually being a problem in the... Uh, the uh, Leadership the race, race of 2017. Leadership. Right. So you'd think they'd have learned their lesson from the con- the concerns that have been raised out of that, that they wouldn't be leaving something like this open in future. So I, I see why people are concerned about it. But now that it's passed, it'll it'll take an amendment to fix it. Um, and, Laura, you mentioned the leadership race of 2017, and that came up in the Legislative Assembly a lot last night, uh, including from UCP MLAs who say, I still hear about this from people mm-hmm. in Alberta that don't trust the fact that Jason Kenney was elected fairly and squarely. Um, and now you've gone and changed the rules so that what happened in 20. 2017, or is alleged to have happened, is now legal. Um, and uh, explain how that works. If you can go out and buy a party membership for somebody without them even knowing you've purchased it, they don't have to sign any f- consent or anything. You can you can essentially sign up more, more members, but how does that change the voting process? Depends on how the vote is, is conducted. So if it's the, the kind of voting process that happens with the UCP leadership nomination, People could vote remotely. Uh, there were, um, we know, that, I mean, we actually got, got documentation that some people's um, names were used, email addresses were provided, and people voted who were not, I mean, the investigation has shown that the people uh, who were, were um, allegedly members of the party and voting in the race were not actually the people who did join the, the party or vote in the race. In other words, fraudulent uh, votes were accumulated in favor of particular candidates in that in that particular um, uh, leadership race. If that sort of thing could happen, let's say if they opened up in uh, future AGM for a leadership review, the same sort of thing could happen. And and again, given what we have seen in terms of um, the backroom dealings on on current negotiations for the leadership um, review, uh, some people want it to be opened up to the electorate overall, and, and of course they're worried that this sort of thing could happen again. Um, the other, I mean, this bill was, I mean, the, there was no bones about it. The UCP, uh, Jason Kenney coming out and saying this is the anti-AFL bill, the Alberta Federation yeah. of Labour. That's what it's about. We're trying to get the union, which uh, the NDP works for, according to Jason Kenney, out of this process altogether. Um, and I'm getting texts from people saying, well, this is good. We need to get unions separated from the process. Is there an argument to be made there that this is a, a constructive thing to do? I think there, this needs to be looked at in a, into, in a broader context because this is not the first piece of legislation that has targeted, targeted uh, workers and organized labor and unions in the province. It's, it's the ninth. Um, the ninth time that they've introduced legislation, and, and this has led to some people say that they are engaged in a war against labor. Yeah. Um, so the, the question is, are they being as tough on other uh, interested entities in, in, in Alberta, corporations, for example? Um, and so there's just that question of fairness and whether there is this, uh, this, this view, if you like, that, um, that Jason Kenney 
is is or the the UCP government is anti uh, labor, including of course this has been a very controversial the, the criticisms of nurses, of doctors, of frontline healthcare workers, and so forth. That somehow or another, if somebody can't be said to be associated with organized labor, with a union, with a union leader, I mean it's been it's been launched against teachers as well. That somehow there's this sort of antipathy or or um, focused. Uh, uh, sort of attack almost on um, on people that are associated with some kind of organization to advocate their interests and that that same kind of focus on other kinds of interests uh, isn't being advanced by this government. So the fairness question, I think, comes up with respect to this. Okay, last one. When we talk about buying memberships for people without them even being aware of it and possibly stacking the deck in favor of certain people... We're not talking about general elections here, Laurie. This is going to be all taking place at the nomination level, right? You're buying right. a party membership to vote in a nomination race. Yep. Okay. Um, we had another topic to discuss, but we're going to leave it there, Laurie, because it's a lot to get into, and I appreciate you coming and giving us a little clarity this morning. Thanks very much. Thank you, Shay. That's Lori Williams, um, an associate professor and student advisor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. So, um, Bill 81, you're going to hear a lot about it today. As I say, it got passed at, I believe, 3 a.m., middle of the night last night is when it ultimately made its way through. Now, it's been fought over and it's been battled about for weeks um, and there were some uh, last-minute amendments made on Monday by Casey Maju, the minister that's sort of been shepherding this through the ledge, um, that put a cap of $4,000 per donation. Um, but the big issue that came out last night that people were really, really concerned about, the primary one is the fact that the UCP made it legal for you to go out and buy a party membership on somebody's behalf without them knowing and without them having to give you consent. All right, so we're going to get into the whole discussion about this country's electrical grid. Can Canada actually produce enough clean electricity to power a net zero grid and all the demands that we're going to be putting on it by 2050? That's the number that keeps getting thrown about, right? You know how it is. Uh, and um, and you're all quick to point out that we don't have a grid that can support it now. And you're absolutely right. We don't. The question is, what do we have now? How far do we have to go? And is it possible? And if it is, what do we need to do? So we're going to chat now with Marin Smith, who is the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada, a program at the Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue at SFU in Vancouver. Marin, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, uh, as I said, I don't know if you heard, but every time we have this discussion, be it climate change, um, electric vehicles, whatever the case may be, whenever we have this discussion um, on the program here, I'm deluged by text from listeners saying, if everybody had an electric vehicle, we don't have a grid to support it. We can't even have air conditioners on in the summer. And I always say, yes, you're right. Right now we don't. We don't have the electrical grid, but maybe we will in the future and they're working on it. Let's define where we are right now um, and what kind of electrical grid we have, you know, taking a look because so many other countries are on board with the same trajectory and the same plans and the same goals, where do we stack up internationally in terms of the grid that we do have and our power producing capabilities? 
Yeah. Now, the good news here is Canada's already a real leader in clean electricity. Our grid is 83% zero emission, and that's largely due to our hydro and nuclear. Um, so uh, we are one of the cleanest and cheapest electric grids uh, in the G7 and in the G20. Um, but we clearly, we need to do a lot more right. because, you know, we're, we're promising to shift away from fossil fuels and electrify transportation, electrify home heating and cooling. And that is going to require, you know, some of the modeling shows about doubling the grid by 2050. So uh, that's a big undertaking. That is. Uh, big, <laughs> yeah. When we talk about doubling the grid, now there's a couple of different elements to that, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong. One of it is the production and the other one is actually the transmission, right? There's two components to having a 2050 grid that works the way they want it to work. That's right. And so when it comes to production, Canada's actually well positioned. As I said, we're already you know, ahead on this with an 83% zero emission. We also have enormous potential for things like solar and wind. In fact, I bet um, a lot of Albertans don't know this, but... Alberta has the best wind and solar resource in Canada, and the solar potential of Alberta is just as good as Florida's. Really? So it it is. Um, And last year, uh, there was wind energy that was being built. uh, uh, Sorry, this was um, earlier, 2017 to 2019, the wind energy that was being built in Alberta set a new record for the lowest renewable electricity prices ever seen in Canada. So, you know, Alberta is actually very well positioned to build out more electricity. Uh, We also have, you know, good potential across the country, including geothermal, run of river. And I think, you know, I did hear your intro, and I think what some of your listeners are saying, the challenges of this, Um, going forward are going to be quite different than in the past. In the past, we really depended on big mega projects um, to build out. And, you know, there still will be some of those. For example, there's, you know, a hundred, there's a thousand people constructing uh, a really large solar plant down in southern Alberta, Um, a thousand people being employed in the construction phase of it. So there will be some big projects like that, but there also now is the potential for a lot of distributed energy. And that's where people are putting solar panels on their roofs or they're creating district energy heating systems. So the technology has evolved in two ways. One, there's a lot more different kinds of electricity generation using solar, using wind, using uh, things like geothermal that there wasn't a decade ago. And secondly, the costs have plummeted. So the cost of solar dropped another 90% in the last decade. You know, putting solar as, as one of the cheapest electricities around, that didn't used to be the case. Um, the other element, of course, is the transmission, and I'm getting a lot of text just as you and I are talking. How are we going to do this? What about power lines all over the country? And, you know, one listener saying, we're into a copper shortage already. How are we going to accomplish this? I mean, how big of a barrier is getting the proper transmission infrastructure in place? Yeah, it's it's a good point. So there's a couple of uh, advantages. So clearly there will need to be a, a big grid infrastructure build out. Uh, the good side of that is that uh, it will be creating jobs and creating jobs across the country, you know, and in rural areas as well. 
um, again, what I was mentioning about some new forms of distributed energy. So we are able to produce energy a lot closer to where it needs to be consumed. Uh, in many places across the country, you can be having wind farms or solar farms, you know, in areas outside of communities, and therefore we aren't going to be having those massive transmission lines. Um, and the other opportunity, you know, people have talked about, oh, do we need a, a coast-to-coast grid? Well, we really don't need that. What we need is to connect the provinces that have those giant uh, batteries because of their hydro re- dams, their hydro resource, connect those provinces to the provinces next door. For example, BC and Alberta, you know, those there are interties between the two, but make them stronger and create a, a grid system that's much more integrated with the you know, intermittent solar and wind potential in Alberta backed up by some of the battery power from that hydro energy. Although I will say, uh, you know, and you would also see uh, Saskatchewan linking to Manitoba, for example, or Manitoba to Ontario, Quebec linking as well. So we have those advantages in Canada of having those provinces with uh, large hydro. But in addition, there's some exciting things in battery storage, which isn't something that we were really thinking about before. There was all this challenge around intermittent uh, renewable energy, like solar and wind. The cost of batteries has come down significantly. And again, it's not just batteries, but other kinds of storage that are coming into place. Uh, So we're seeing places like southern Australia that have been using solar and battery storage for the last five years. They haven't had one hour of outage. Um, So they're getting 62% of their electricity from wind and solar combined with their battery storage. Hmm. Uh, So that's exciting. Yeah, you mentioned partnering with Alberta, partnering with Saskatchewan or, you know, in BC and things like that. What about, I mean, it seems to be at this point, Canada's doing this, the U.S. is doing this, Germany's announced this. Is there going to be more of an international collaboration on some of these issues or is it going to be each country standing alone can we learn from other countries and work with them yeah that's a great point and i think we already are so the for example that story i just told you about australia and how have they combined the wind and solar and battery storage at a grid scale to to succeed so i think countries like canada are looking to other places in the world as well those technologies are getting developed Uh, Again, new forms of battery storage or energy storage getting developed. Uh, There's some big ones being tried out in the United States that I think we'll get the results from next year. Uh, So there's definitely, through the International Energy Agency or the International Renewable Energy uh, Agency, there's a lot of um, collaboration and sharing of technologies and information. The interesting thing is Canada does have a you know good experience in this area, so it's not just jobs developing electricity, but the potential for businesses that are developing technologies. And we do have a good tech sector uh, in Alberta, in BC, uh, Quebec, Ontario, um, that are part of developing uh, improved technologies. And I just met yesterday with somebody who is using silicon uh, from Quebec, developing it into solar panels. These will be the first North American-made solar panels. Right now, those are being imported from China. So that's a big step forward to, you know, ensure the supply chain issues, create the jobs here in Canada uh, Canada and the U.S. in North America. 
Um, and one of the products that they're hoping to have online in the next few years is a film that you would put, for example, on the roof of your car as a solar panel that would be able to provide 50 kilometers of range for your car just uh, powering all the time while your car is sitting out there. So that's, uh, that's the kind of exciting new technologies and, and opportunities that we're seeing that are why the, the questions of the grid of the past, um, you know, there's opportunities here going into the future with technologies and with prices coming down that we haven't seen in, in the past. And, it, and, it's, and I think, you know, a lot of people look at where we are today, Marin, and say, oh, it doesn't work, and we're only producing, you know, a fraction of a percent of wind and solar in, in Alberta right now. And, and, and the, the message I always try to say is, yes, you're right, today we are. Today it's not a, it's not a feasible alternative. Talk to me in 30 years. We might be in a different position because this technology advances and gets cheaper, uh, you know, almost minute by minute, if, if you know, history is any uh, proof. Yeah, it's right. And that translates into better affordability for families and for businesses. Uh, you know, I gave you that example in Australia. So household energy bills there have gone down by $300 uh, per family over the last three years. That's good news. Uh, and so I think we're going to see some, um, you know, once we get into electrifying our economy, there's a, you know, a cost to get into the new system. Uh, ultimately, it's going to be uh, advantageous both to families and to businesses. Yeah, down the road, down the road. Marin, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have that- a great day. You too. That's Marin Smith, who is the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada, a program at the Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Switch gears a little bit and talk about an international story that is getting a lot of attention and we need to keep a very close eye on, and that's the situation along the Ukrainian border with Russia and the massive buildup of troops uh, on behalf of the Russian forces there. Uh, There was a conversation yesterday between um, U.S. President Joe Biden and um, Vladimir Putin talking about the situation and some threats were leveled. If any action is taken, there will be uh, severe repercussions. Um, Let's just get the latest on what's going on and and what could possibly happen. We're going to be chatting now with Andrew Rasoulis, who's a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Well, uh, it's a great pleasure, Shay, and uh, thank you for having me back on your show. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it last time. Looking forward to this one. Um, Let's just get up to speed on what the situation is along that border. Um, We're talking about tens of thousands of troops that recently have been moved into the area by Russia, correct? Correct. Um, So there's two parts to this story. One is the April uh, leading up to uh, the June summit uh, where that Putin had face-to-face with Biden in Geneva. And now you have part two, uh, which is the video telephone conference yesterday, and also another ramp-up of troops on the Ukrainian border by the Russians this time, much greater than it was in April. So what's this all about? Fundamentally, the Russians have been signaling, and they started signaling in in earnest in April, that they are opposed to Ukraine joining joining NATO. That is really their red line. Uh, They met. When when they, when Putin and Putin diffused the situation, sorry, Biden diffused the situation in June by meeting with Putin, 
And they thought they had, or Putin thought they had an agreement that kind of said, okay, no formal uh, uh, allowance of Ukraine into NATO, and the Russians would, in fact, then not do cyber attacks on the U.S. So that kind of held. But then, and and then, yes, and then in in August, uh, despite uh, some members of NATO trying to push a Ukrainian membership, um, there was no consensus, and Ukraine was told that they could not join NATO for the present time. Then the Russians expected the Ukrainians to come and, and do the Minsk treat, uh, agreements that they had signed in 2014 and implement that, um, but they didn't. Uh, what the Ukrainians did was they doubled down on taking the training that Ukraine uh, that, that the, the, the NATO was giving to the Ukrainians, and the Americans sent their Secretary of Defense to Ukraine to actually tell them that they were right there with them with the training and equipment and so on. So then the Russians said, well, wait a minute, all, you're getting all this NATO support, even though you're not part of NATO, but it, you look like NATO. So it's the old, you know, it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, sure, must yeah. be a duck. <laughs> so it must be NATO, right? So then the Russians got very frustrated. No Minsk agreement, uh, uh, lots of NATO activity in Ukraine. So they brought up the troops again, and this time bigger than before. Uh, and, and looking like, you know, they were really going to go in there, and they have the capability, yep. and, and everyone's, you know, this is not a secret. Everyone's intelligence is saying they could, by January, when the snow, when the ground freezes, have Russian tanks roll into a, a pincer movement, a limited attack against um, the southern part of Ukraine uh, to make a land bridge around Crimea, and a diversionary pincer attack through Belarus. Okay. So, again, diffuse the situation. So what happened yesterday? So, uh, the talks have led to, and this is a good thing, more talking. Uh, jaw, jaw, as, Ch- as Churchill said, jaw, jaw, not war, war. Yeah. Uh, and they have agreed to continue a dialogue, uh, not just on Ukraine, but actually on three other areas. Uh, one's called strategic stability, which they had already broached in Geneva, and they're going to double down and do more of those things between Russians and Americans, um, as well as ransomware, which is a, a subcomponent issue of the cyber uh, warfare issue. So they're going to keep, keep working on that, and they're going to deal with regional issues like Iran. Um, so this gives the Russians what they, I guess, they're really their kind of their minimalist position, which is, okay, we want to be treated as a kind of a co-equal like yep, back yep. in the superpower days. Um, they've got respect, uh, and, and, and they're in a dialogue. So I think basically the situation now is diffused. I don't think the Russians will have the troops go home right away. I think they'll keep them there to provide the pressure. Because there's still the issue of what are you going to do with Ukrainians now and the Ukrainian situation with the occupation of the Donbass and the East and so on. Uh, and Crimea, I won't even get in there because that's a really long-term issue. But, but the, the thing is that Minsk, that agreement, appears to be off the table right now for the Ukrainians. Uh, because it, fundamentally, it would mean a neutral Ukraine. Uh, because the, the, the Minsk agreement requires okay. a semi-autonomy in the, in the Donbass, and the Ukrainians won't go for that. So we're in a stalemate. We need to find a new form of coexistence framework. So uh, what does that mean about their, their NATO membership or their aspirations? Same thing there? That's, that's paused for now? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, NATO membership is definitely on pause. Uh, that they, there was no consensus at, at, at formal meetings throughout the summer, and they've been told outright, you're not getting into NATO today. Gotcha. So that's off the table for now. But they are a partner of NATO, and as a, as a, as a partner, not an ally. That's a clear distinction. So NATO will not go to war over Russia for Ukraine, but NATO will provide training, support, and assistance, and, and some weapons to Ukraine. It's a partnership arrangement. So it's, a, it's like a, 
in an informal situation. Yeah. Okay. So that so that's that that's what's happening. And, and and but but that can't. But so the Russians are saying we can't accept that. We need to move beyond that. With some kind of accommodation. And that's where the diplomacy is working now. Um, and uh, as you say, diffused for the moment. But also, uh, from what I've read, uh, a red line or a line in the sand, whatever you want to call it. Biden saying, mm-hmm. if you do take some sort of action, there will be consequences. He mentioned economic sanctions and all that sort of thing. But he also. Yeah. He sort of left it open-ended in terms of what the response might be, right? Uh, well, uh, not necessarily in terms of there's no military response. That's clearly off the That's table. off the table, okay. Uh, that, that is off the table. Um, and, and then the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg made that very clear last week in Riga, uh, where there was the meeting of the NATO uh, foreign ministers. And in the press conference, he made it very clear that Ukraine is a partner of NATO, not a member of NATO. And therefore, Article 5, that is the military defense of, a, of an ally, does not apply to Ukraine. That has been clearly stated by the NATO Secretary General. And uh, uh, Biden, in all of his statements, and, that, and those of Blinken and the U- U.S. administration, have talked about defending Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity, and when they talk about how they're going to do it, they speak in terms of economics and economic sanctions and economic uh, yeah. uh, retribution, if you will, like taking the Russians out of SWIFT, the payments and so on, like really hammering them economically, but not committing U.S. or NATO forces. Gotcha. So crisis averted for now, but still uh, volatile and potentially something that could flare up. But right now... Yeah, it's right now, it's the time for diplomacy. Yeah. The diplomats are working, and we'll see what they come up with. Andrew, perfect breakdown. Thank you so much for the insight. You're very welcome. Always a pleasure. That Take is care. Andrew Rasoulis, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And um, as he said, it's it's not an end. It's not a resolution, right? And I think that's the best we could have hoped for yesterday, because there was a lot of concerns. I don't know if you saw the story. I think it was probably two, three weeks ago. I think it was the Ukrainian defense minister who came out and said, hey, they're going to invade shortly after Christmas. He had no doubt about it. And he apparently had been tipped off by somebody. So, I mean, the the specter of war along that Russia-Ukraine border has been right there, front and center, for a number of weeks now. And if we manage to walk back from that a little bit, at least for the time being... Uh, I think we all benefit from that kind of a situation, but we'll see where it goes. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.